it flabbergasts me that this is still a thing. It really does. Yeah. But, you know, there's part of me that says, well, why? I mean, you saw some pretty weird shit just in your own church. And yeah, I did. But even some of the weirdest among the people that I went to church with would have still told you that this was next level batshit insane. It's no surprise to me why a bunch of reality trash TV producers zeroed in on this church or this small group of churches. And they are doing what so many other groups that come under the cover of Christianity do. They completely ignore verses and passages that decry their actions in favor of being allowed to just do things their own way. Even your Messiah warned you about not putting God to the test. If the Bible is the word of God, you have to accept all of it. Honestly, it's just one more example of the bandwagon effect. And this time, that wagon is missing a few vital safety features. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And And it's it's time to get Unbound. If tonight's topic isn't a clear case of people choosing their own fucked up, crazy and fundamentally awful better story, I don't know what is. I also have no clue what the writer of Mark's gospel was thinking when they came up with their version of the Great Commission, because if they had just kept it simple, like the rest of them did, we probably wouldn't have this subject to talk about tonight. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And tonight we're talking about snake handlers, a fringe sect of the Pentecostal holiness movement who take biblical literalism to a huge and often deadly extreme. What is the fascination with doing something that is clearly dangerous and which even they concede can have deadly consequences? But they have an answer to that. Well, when it's your time to go, it's your time to go. (laughs) Even if you die fulfilling the word of God, some would say, especially if you die fulfilling the word of God. And we're going to have a lot more to say on this subject in just a few. But before we do, the evangelical matrix the pro-life minority report, and Greg Locke proving once again that vile and ignorant are an intellectually lethal combination. It's Christians behaving badly, the abject stupidity trifecta edition. (laughs) Shell, what have you got for us this week? Okay, first I've got Sherry Tenpenny, who is an influential religious right activist and anti-vax expert who says that the COVID-19 vaccine will, let's see, this is quite a claim, turn people into transhumanist cyborgs. Well, that's original. Yes. Sort of. I mean, it has a real Matrix kind of feel to it. Yeah. Somebody saw it and just ran with it. Also, that they will be hooked up to the Internet of Things and will be controlled by magnets and 5G. Yeah. Okay. Did I actually say that this was, like, unique a second ago? Yeah, no. No. Now, the whole magnets and 5G thing. Yeah. It's been done before, sweetheart. These are a few of the sorts of conspiracy theories that Tenpenny has spread on various podcasts, the reawakened conservative events, and even the Ohio State House. I believe they laughed at her. That would have been interesting to see. Yeah, right? That actually would have been very entertaining to watch. Yes. And here's a quote from her appearance on the Stu Peters show. Stu Peter. Um, the stupider show? What? <laughs> well, the this what? is the, the stupider show, yeah. Where she tries to explain these things. This is her quote. This is from, very rambly. 
This is a quote from her. Yeah. But yes, it is very rambly and really disconnected, but this is what she wants to say. I'll try and keep up. Here we go. Yeah. The whole issue of quantum entanglement and what the shots do in terms of the frequencies and the electronic frequencies that come inside your body and hook you up to the Internet of Things. The quantum entanglement that happens immediately after you're injected. You get hooked up to what they're trying to develop. It's called the hive mind, and they want all of us there as a node and as an electronic avatar that is an exact replica of us, except it's an electronic replica. It's not our God-given body that we are born with. And all of that will be running through the metaverse that they're talking about. All of these things are real, Stu. All of them. And it's happening right now. It's not some science fiction thing happening in the future. It's happening right now in real time. Well, she's half right. It's not some science fiction thing. It's several rather popular science fiction things. Yeah. All kind of woven into this one really, really disjointed L. Ron Hubbard-esque kind of situation. It just, it really, when I read this, number one, it doesn't make any more sense reading it than it does saying it out loud. No, it really, it really doesn't. doesn't. I've heard all of these conspiracy theories in other contexts before. Yeah. And she literally is taking them and merging them yeah. with major themes in science fiction and then turning around and saying, oh, but this isn't science fiction. Um, these things are happening. Well, okay. Um, I'm going to need a little something called proof. Yeah, just a little. But it's like she is a real scholar of conspiracy theory. And she probably had a dream or something where all of this stuff sort of occurred to her and she took it as a message from God. That's yeah, the only I, thing I can think of because how do you even put these things together? You put them together when you, just like you said, spend a lot of time thinking about conspiracy theories. So this is just an amalgam of a lot of things that have been bouncing around inside her head for a while. Yeah. I mean, that's my take on it anyway. Well, she says it's all real, so it must be true, right? Of course. I'm not sure how people come up with this stuff. I mean, even though nothing surprises me, this surprised me. Oh, yeah. I've I've given up on using the term nothing surprises me anymore because every single time I say it, they prove me wrong. There's, there's there's always something more crazy than the last thing you heard. Yeah. It just keeps escalating and escalating. But they come up with this stuff because they're bored and a lot <laughs> of it's already in their head. Every right. detail in this comes from something that I've heard before. Yeah. So it's all bouncing around in her head and it just sort of homogenized into this. And she had this epiphany and had to tell the world. Apparently. That's pretty much what it boils down to. Yeah, I guess. What have we got next? Well, this next story, I can't explain it nearly as well as Hemet Mehta, so I'll let him do it. Michigan gubernatorial candidate Garrett Soldano, a chiropractor who's never run for any public office before, recently told right-wing anti-mask host April Moss of Real America's Voice that women who are raped should thank God for the situation they're in because that child may be the next president. Not once we abort it. Yeah, right? But still, might be the next president. Not once we abort it. No. Someone else will be the next president. Yes. And that will be reality. Right. Isn't not, that amazing not how that this works? this person's fantasy. Wasn't there one, like, isn't there still one 
that circulates around all the time that describes the socioeconomic state of like Beethoven's mother or something. And He's it's like something well, like that. If yeah. you if you were this woman's friend, would you advise her to get an abortion? Well, congratulations, you just killed Beethoven. Well, you know, what that would mean is that we would never know who Beethoven was and it wouldn't so matter. It would be a moot point. Exactly. Silly. So someone who decides to have an abortion is not aborting the next president. They're doing what they believe to be right for them at that moment in their lives. The next president will be someone else and it will be transparent to the rest of us. This isn't, you know, we're not talking about John Connor here. No, okay? no. It's of no consequence what a person that became of this pregnancy would be because the abortion happened. Yeah. And that's that. I know, but not according to Garrett Soldano. Because he knows a great guy whose mother was gang raped. But hey, he turned out okay, so why doesn't every woman carry the child of their rapist to term? Because that's not what they want to do. And right. frankly, ew. Seriously. Even Billy Graham, yeah. when he was asked about this, he never said, this is my opinion. But he did kind of scapegoat one of his friends, and he said point blank that in instances of rape or incest this friend of his thought that it would be forgivable in the eyes of god right and went on to say something along the lines of and this is someone whose judgment i really trust or something mm -hmm. along that or something like that i don't remember the exact quote right but because i'm trying to think of it right off the top of my head but even billy graham yeah. is in that camp or was in that camp um garrett soldano continues and so what we must start to focus on is not only to defend the DNA when it's created, how about we start inspiring women in the culture to let them understand and know how heroic they are and how unbelievable they are, that God put them in this moment and they don't know that little baby inside them may be the next president. He may be the person that changes um, humanity, may get us out of the situation, maybe in the future. We don't know that. You know, of course, there's no thought for what this traumatized woman might be going through. No consideration that she might be the next president or that she might change humanity. Nope. Nope. Hemet Meta goes on in his blog post, keep in mind that Soldano, like most Republicans, also opposes the sort of structural policies that would assist women in that very situation. Instead of creating a world where unwanted pregnancies don't occur, or where women who go through with an unplanned pregnancy have the support they need to raise the child, he just magically assumes everything will be okay post-birth. He added elsewhere in the interview that he supports the Texas anti-abortion law, banning the procedure before most women even know they're pregnant. He's serious too. His website says that he will fight women's rights at every turn because he's guided by our shared conservative values and faith in our creator. Everyone who isn't a conservative is going to suffer under his rule because they, of course, are not worthy of representation. While there's pushback from the Democratic side, it's terrifying that this guy is running. And all of the other Republican candidates for the Michigan gubernatorial race have said many of the same things. So we got one more tonight, and I'm going to add a little trigger warning to this one. If you know, live with, or love someone with autism, mm. you are not going to like what this asshole has to say. So we're talking about Pastor Greg Locke. And fortunately, it's you 
telling this story and not yeah. me because I'm not sure that I could get through this without my blood absolutely boiling. I know. So I'm going to try not to breathe hard into the mic while you talk about this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, there, there's a reason he's the guy I want to punch in the face out of the three people I talked about today. Well, he would be the first. I, He'd I, be the I first. Think that they, I think they each get their turn. Yeah. But yeah. He can come right to the front of the line. Absolutely. Yeah. Man, when Pastor Greg Locke starts out saying, do not jump up right now and rebuke me for what I'm about to say, you know it's not going to be anything sensible or valuable. Not that anything he says actually is, but he talked about children who are brought to Jesus that had epileptic fits, anger issues, outbursts of emotion, and then he goes on with a doozy. This is probably the worst thing I've ever heard him say. And that's saying something. Yeah, because mm-hmm. he's, yeah. And because we called it possession, parents refused to deal with it, he continued. Are you telling me my kid's possessed? No, I'm telling you your kid has been demonized and attacked, but your doctor calls it autism. I don't care if you stand or not. I don't care if you leave or not. I tell you, there's deliverance in the name of Jesus Christ for your children and their children's children. Deliverance from what? Autism isn't a problem. It isn't a problem. It's just a different way of thinking and seeing the world. That's it. It's just dicks like this who make it a problem. Well, you know, he's had help. Let's let's, let's be fair. Yeah, let's, let's be fair. He's they had call plenty it of help. autism spectrum disorder. Right. Okay? That's the scientific term. Right. Sometimes science can be a little douchey, too. Well, yeah, okay? of course. Because it's a disorder... Because it's not the status quo, it's not the norm, it's out there on the fringes of the way people think and behave, so it must be a disorder. Yeah. So in this instance, it doesn't start with them. No. They've got enough fuel just by calling it a fucking disorder to, yeah. uh, to start saying shit like this. True. And then he says, ain't no such diagnosis in the Bible. Uh, there's no such diagnosis as endometriosis in the Bible, but that's a real thing. Yeah. You know what else isn't in the Bible? Cancer, diabetes, influenza. Because this was written by Bronze Age desert dwellers who called acne leprosy. You know, even when I was a teenager, I brought yeah. that up. It's like, how many of these people that everyone thought were lepers were just people with bad acne? Really? That was most of it. I mean, leprosy is a real thing. Yeah. But any kind of skin disorder was, was there's that word again yeah any other skin disorder was considered leprosy yeah and that was something i actually brought up a couple of times when i was younger with some of the some of our uh, youth pastors youth leaders and whatnot yeah. it's like what's the probability and even they had to say yeah it was pretty high but you know people didn't understand things back then the way we do now well duh and that's pretty much what we're saying here yeah but Locke likes to deny modern medicine he just loves it well, most of them do. Yeah, it's you ridiculous. Know, medicine, science, these are the real enemies out there. Yeah. God can fix anything. <laughs> yeah, okay. Thankfully, since the clip was posted to Twitter, plenty have responded to the tweet pointing out the logical flaws in Locke's ideas. However, many people also pointed out that though Locke's ideas seem so far-fetched, they could still potentially have psychological damage on individuals and society as a whole. I mean, there's enough people who denigrate autistics. Oh, yeah. Some autism charities Yes. that I could name yeah. denigrate autistic people. I mean, we've talked about this before in, in the context of like Christian counseling and whatnot. Right. There are 
just a couple of things, just a couple diagnoses for anything out there. And a lot of times it involves demons as the cause mm. and prayer and laying on of hands and all of these things that they do as the cure. I don't even want to think about what it's like living inside my son's head. Right. I couldn't even begin to imagine what he goes through in a day that the rest of us take for granted that we're able to just process and move on from that he just can't. Yeah. You know, there are so many differences in the way that he thinks about things, the way that he presents ideas. It's so different. And that is why society likes to call it a disorder right. because it rips us out of our comfort zones and forces us to deal with people who aren't like us. Right. It is not a disease. It's just another way of thinking. It's about time we, we all just started being a little bit more enlightened on this subject and stopped treating these people like there's something wrong with them, like they are lepers. Yeah. Because that doesn't serve any purpose in society. And it certainly doesn't reflect to me the views of a loving and merciful God who makes people with autism as they are and then somehow makes it okay not to accept them as they are. Yeah. So before I get too heated up on this subject, because <laughs> I can get very heated up on this uh -huh. subject. Yeah, I know. We just want to let everybody know that our Patreon is active at patreon.com slash network. Any amount of money that you can throw our way will help us to help other people get and stay unbound. That is our purpose. That is why we're here. That's why we keep coming back with this content every single week. And we thank you for coming back every single week and being part of what we're doing. If you can help us out financially, we would greatly appreciate it. But if not, you can help us with your likes, your shares, your five-star ratings, your good reviews, all the things that make podcasts grow and tell new people about them because that is how they grow. I don't think that I listened to a single podcast that I didn't learn about by way of word of mouth. Yeah. So talk about us. Talk to your friends. Talk to people who are still in this thing called evangelical Christianity that you want to see get their lives back. We're here to help them do that. And you can help us help them do that by simply letting them know that we're here. So one more time, if you have the money to spare and can help us out in any way with any amount, patreon.com slash unbound podcast network is where you're going to go to make your pledge. And we thank everyone for all the support that you give us on whatever level you give it and in whatever ways you help us spread this message so that we can help more people get their lives back from this religion that frames love as hate and hate as love. So we want to tell you a little bit about what's coming up in the next couple of weeks here. This is episode 99. <laughs> we are in triple digits as of our next episode. I did think for a little while about the possibility of doing some kind of retrospective, talking about past episodes, it would be a good promotional thing, but where my life is right now, I just don't have the time to go digging for all the clips that I would want to use. We might do something like that a little bit further down the road, but episode 100 is just going to be a basic episode with a new topic, and that topic will be Suffering for Jesus, How Evangelicals Define Religious Persecution. Mm. Um, it is true that Christianity is a persecuted religion around the world, but it is not the only one. And the way that evangelicals define persecution doesn't even come close to what's actually happening out there. We're going to talk about that next week. That episode drops on February 13th. The following Sunday, February 20th, we'll be talking about biblical contradictions, errors in the inerrant word of God. Mm -hmm. And there are so many that 
we're not going to go through every last one of them in one episode. And I don't think we're going to make a series out of it either. I think we're going to kind of pick our top 10, top 20, however many we have time to talk about. And we're just going to give you the highlight reel. Some of the more glowing examples of how the inerrant word of God says different things in different places. That's on the 20th of February. On February 27th, we are going to be taking a break. That is the first week for me as the driving school owner and resident teacher to do the accelerated classroom portion of driver's ed. So I just flat out will not have time to research or produce an episode that week. And this will happen every couple of months whenever we have, um, whenever I have to do one of these classes, we're going to be taking a week off and maybe two. But for right now, I'm reasonably certain because we're really good at getting the movie episodes together yeah, and getting them organized in a little bit more of a timely way. A lot of that is just my chaotic brain not letting me sit down and just think about what I need to research until the time to record starts getting a little bit closer. But with the movie episodes, we usually have an easier time of putting yeah. things together. So I'm reasonably certain that on March 6th, you're going to get our next edition of Unbound at the Movies, where we will be reviewing M. Night Shyamalan's The Village. I'm not sure if the theistic message in this movie is purposeful or accidental, because I know that M. Night has made some other statements about religion in some of his other movies that are way more positive than this. Yeah. So what his actual opinion is on religion, I'm not 100% certain. I do know that I like the end of signs way less as an atheist than I did as a theist. Yeah. But this one in particular, I think, has a really, really strong anti-religion message. The Village, to me, really encapsulates a lot of what is wrong with religion. And oddly enough, it's largely religion-free. But the messaging, the underlying messaging here, is all about what it's like to be a born-again Christian. And the rules and the regulations and the things that they teach you to think and believe. This movie does a stellar job of putting all of that out on the table and showing precisely what's wrong with it. So we're going to get into that on March 6th. And again, we really appreciate the people who support us and make the time that we spend on this show worthwhile. I've said it before. I have no idea where I am finding the time to do everything that is part of my life right now. I have no idea where the time is coming from, but, you know, I'm very motivated on both fronts, my business and with this podcast, because my business is helping people learn a valuable life skill that they'll still be using when they're 80. And this resource that I spend so much time and effort on also has the potential to give people their lives back after years of being immersed in this religion. So that's what's coming up in the next few weeks. Right now, I think it's time that we get into our main conversation for tonight and talk about this enigmatic sect of Pentecostalism called Snake Handlers. So I looked at a lot of sources for tonight's episode, but it kind of whittles down to just a couple. And most of the ones that came up on the first page of a Google search referenced a reality series called Snake Salvation. It's no surprise to me why a bunch of reality trash TV producers, I don't care that they work for National Geographic, zeroed in on this church 
or this small group of churches and this one idiot and his cronies. After all, the more outrageous the reality is, the more viewers you get. So snake salvation follows the goings on in several snake handling churches throughout Appalachia, particularly the one pastored by Andrew Hamblin. The accompanying article for this says this, while old timers in this movement avoided such vices as smoking and swearing, dressed modestly, eschewed divorce, and never spoke to reporters, Hamblin openly enjoyed cigarettes, never insisted on a dress code, and welcomed media. His congregation was just as likely to include grandmothers in floor-length skirts and chignons as recovered drug addicts and women in denim, rhinestones, and white leather boots. Ironically, it is the latter group, younger and far more worldly, that now breathes new life into this controversial practice. Wouldn't it have been nice if it had simply died of natural causes? Yeah. They call this the land of misfits church, and that comes from someone who drove 90 miles, 90 miles, to attend one of these uh, one of these crazy services. Wow. And she says people with a past come to Andrews. And, you know, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, well, they have a past. Do they want to have a future? Yeah. I mean, let's think yeah. about what they're walking into and what they're doing. And I'm reading all of this. And the woman who said this actually brought her teenage daughter mm. to this thing. And the daughter had just started handling snakes. Right. She described the experience as overwhelming and exciting. Wow. Um, well, you know. There are other exciting things to do out there. Ride a roller coaster. Go to a water park. Get a boyfriend. I mean, the possibilities are endless, and they just flat out don't need to extend to handling snakes. And mom, don't even get me started on just the sheer ridiculousness of exposing your child to this and encouraging it and standing there and watching it happen. Now, Sojourners Magazine, one of the only religious publications I'll give the time of day, sets the stage for the mayhem in this church this way. When Andrew Hamblin walks into church to preach on a Sunday morning, he brings along death in a box. It's my death in a box. Oh, God, stop. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay, let's, let's get serious here. This isn't a comedy podcast. It could be, though. I'm a little deadpan in my delivery. That's why it's not. I, I mean, I could do comedy, but I don't think it would come across as very funny. No. I've tried it in the past. I think the listeners will agree that uh, I'm better off not trying to delve into that area. When Andrew Hamlin walks into church to preach on a Sunday morning, he brings along death in a box. If the Holy Spirit moves him during the service, he will open the box's hinged glass lid and remove a poisonous snake, one of several he keeps at his house, and it's more than several. We'll get to that later. And dance with it, sometimes wearing it, sometimes jerking it about. Oh, that's not going to piss it off or anything. Yeah, that's not. As his small Tennessee congregation sings and chants. And these people are so delusional that they think they can't follow the whole gospel without engaging in this practice that quite literally calls them to what author Julia Dewan refers to as the radical edge of Christianity, where life and death meet every time you walk into church and pick up a snake. That's a paraphrase of a quote from her book, In the House of the Serpent Handler, A Story of Faith and Fleeting Fame in the Age of Social Media. And in this book, the author recounts how she, quote, embedded herself in multiple Appalachian snake handling congregations like Hamblin's to learn what motivates people to embrace this potentially deadly expression of faith. I love how she just infiltrated it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's kind of heroic. Yeah. 
um, yeah, getting right. getting that kind of a view of it, and then turning around and writing a book. Mm. Snake handling is a largely American thing. Surprise, surprise. Mm. It just strikes me as the type of thing we do here. The practices that most closely mimic Pentecostal snake handlers are represented well in the religious rites of the Hopi. With the largest concentration in South Arizona, the Hopi have an annual ritual called the snake dance, where snakes are handled, held in the mouth, and at the end are released in the four directions to search for rain. I wonder how many of them die of salmonella. I don't know. I mean, you don't want to put a snake in your mouth. No. I mean, if there's one thing that I know about snakes is that a lot of them carry salmonella on the surfaces of their scales. Right. So... You know, I've always been told if you're going to handle a snake, then you should wash your hands right after. Right. Because you could have salmonella Any on reptile. your hands. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the public could observe parts of this ritual, but it was rather lengthy, and some of it was considered private enough to be done in kivas, which are basically enclosed spaces, usually circular and built into the ground. Interesting to me, though, is the ritualistic, almost Native American vibe that Hamblin's church embraces when it comes to snake handling. National Geographic describes it this way. Men in dress shirts and black pants linked arms around each other's shoulders and shuffle danced, forming and reforming circles as they wove across the pulpit's small platform. I can see this in my head and it looks like it yeah. looks like a Native American ritual. Praying and singing, they passed sharp fanged serpents from hand to hand or waved them slowly in the air. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They, yep, I mean I can see it. Yeah. I can see it happening, but I can see it happening in a couple of different contexts. Yeah. So this was borrowed. This was very Definitely clearly borrowed. borrowed. Now, there is at least one much, much older example, but it's a little bit of a stretch. An earlier Gnostic practice among the Ophites involved snake handling and snake worship. Their name is actually a generic term for what they considered heretical speculations concerning the serpent of Genesis or Moses. And I'm wondering if heretical here is close to my own heretical view of the serpent, because I've, I have my own ideas about this that I've shared before. Now, in our conversations about Azusa Street, we made passing mention of the holiness movement, a.k.a. Pentecostal holiness. This is a diabolically strict sect of Pentecostal evangelicalism that places rigid rules of conduct and appearance on its adherents, and not just the women, oddly enough. Men in the holiness movement are held to pretty high standards and expectations, too. And these rules still exist in settings like Tabernacle Church of God in La Follette, Tennessee, the church that 20-something pastor Andrew Hamlin pastors. That's right, folks. He's a kid. And the probability of him dying young is pretty damn high. Yeah. Snake handling, also called serpent handling, is a religious rite observed in a small number of isolated churches. This is National Geographic again mostly in the United States, usually characterized as ritual and part of the holiness movement. The practice began in the early 20th century in Appalachia and plays only a small part in the church service. But, I mean, it only has to play a small part. Yeah. Participants are holiness, Pentecostals, charismatics, or other evangelicals. The beliefs and practices of the movement have been documented in several films and have been the impetus for a number of state laws related to the handling of venomous animals. CBS News has this to say about the history of snake handling. Snake handling gained momentum when George Hensley, a Pentecostal minister working in various southern states in the early 1900s, recounted an experience where, while on a mountain, a serpent slithered beside him. 
Hensley purported to be able to handle the snake with impunity, and when he came down the mountain, he proclaimed the truth of following all five of the signs in the Gospel of Mark. Hensley himself <laughs> later died from a snake bite. Today, snake handling is most common in the southern Appalachian states. Snake handlers commonly use native rattlesnakes and copperheads in their rituals. Such churches are largely independent and, yeah, who wants to touch them with a 10-meter cattle prod? <laughs> and often call themselves, quote, signs-following churches. We'll get into the signs themselves in just a few. But for right now, let's take a trip into the heart of Appalachia and learn about this odd, almost a country within itself section of the U.S., According to the Wikipedia about Appalachia, while the Appalachian Mountains stretch from Belle Isle in Canada to Chiha Mountain in Alabama, Appalachia typically refers only to the cultural region of the central and southern portions of the range from the Blue Ridge Mountains, Virginia, southwest to the Great Smoky Mountains. As of the 2010 United States Census, the region was home to approximately 25 million people. I also took a look at a map because I saw a couple of other sources that said that it actually extended further north and south than mm -hmm. a lot of people realize. And this map has a little chunk of New York in there. It's got eastern Ohio. It's got eastern Kentucky, eastern Tennessee, western North Carolina, western uh, Virginia, all of West Virginia, northern Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi. There, it's It's pretty widespread mm -hmm. it's a large area that i would assume that if you took this entire segment of the country you'd get a lot more than 25 million but not all of those people would be representative of this very distinct culture right so i think that's what they're referring to so that map gives an idea of the official area of appalachia in terms of geography but some sources go more by the concentration of cultural traits present in the region and place their influences a little further south, extending into Texas and surrounding states, eventually meshing with the Deep South. So Appalachia was recognized as a distinctive region in the late 1800s. It is the subject of numerous stereotypes regarding the intellect, genetics, isolation, and temperament of the people who live there. And another quick quote from the Wikipedia Early 20th century writers often engaged in yellow journalism focused on the sensationalistic aspects of the region's culture, such as moonshining and clan feuding, and often portrayed the region's inhabitants as uneducated and prone to impulsive acts of violence. Sociological studies in the 1960s and 1970s helped to re-examine and dispel these stereotypes. Now, moonshining and feuding were, however, and in some areas still are, real aspects of Appalachian life. I mean, just for the sake of example, have you ever heard of the Hatfields and McCoys? Um, that wasn't urban legend. It was a real thing. You can read all about the real history of it and how it started around the time of the Civil War over land disputes and other details. There were interpersonal conflicts between individuals. There were a lot of things that went into that, but it was a real thing. Now, the Appalachian region is teeming with valuable natural resources. Logging, coal, and steel are all part of the Appalachian landscape. And yet, the region has always struggled economically, and poverty levels are high, especially in the more truly rural and isolated areas. Logging and coal mining were the biggest industries there from the late 19th century until sometime in the 1960s when jobs started disappearing due to the antics of rich moguls who didn't bother to come up with a long-term plan of sustaining their wealth. 
So, outspending what they were making on the production of coal and wood products, they ran out of cash to pay their workers and eventually left lots of people in a lurch that the regional economy feels even to this day. Efforts have been made over the years to alleviate the poverty that pervades the region. The U.S. federal government attempted to intervene in the 1930s with various New Deal initiatives. They created jobs building dams for generating hydroelectric power and implemented farming practices that were designed to ease the process of cultivation and produce better yields. Less labor and better yields should lead to higher profits, but none of this really worked out that well. Then, on March 9, 1965, the Appalachian Regional Commission was created to further alleviate poverty in the region, mainly by diversifying the region's economy and helping to provide better health care and educational opportunities to the region's inhabitants. By 1990, Appalachia had largely joined the economic mainstream, but still lagged behind the rest of the nation in most economic indicators, and it still does. Religion and religious practices and the proliferation of each has various socioeconomic factors built in. Different flavors of Christianity work better in different parts of the country. While there are Catholics throughout the U.S., for example, you will find far more of them in the Northeast than in the Deep South. The Deep South likes their old-time religion and the rustic folk culture of Appalachia likes a more rustic folk religion-based brand of evangelicalism. This is true in various settings, not just the one that we're talking about tonight. And this principle works in various settings, not just this one. It is worth mentioning that snake handling is still too batshit an idea, even for most people who think they can speak in tongues. A vast majority of Pentecostal evangelicals decry the practice as being reckless, foolhardy, vain, and rebellious. They prefer Jesus's admonishment to Satan about not putting God to the test and cite the fact that people die as proof that this is not an instance where God is going to give his angels charge over them. And we'll revisit this concept in just a few. For right now, let's get into the heart of this conversation and talk about snake handling and why people do it. Well, the obvious reason is that they're fucking idiots who have found themselves cruising down the road at lethal speeds on one of the wildest bandwagons Christianity has to offer. I think Santeria might have this beat, but it's a close call. The problem is that, yes, they're idiots, but they're idiots that their religion and its radical interpretation of just one brief passage in Mark's gospel have made them. So what is this passage and all this business about the signs? To answer that question, we have to look first at a little thing called the Great Commission. The Great Commission appears five times in the New Testament. Only two of the four gospel writers thought that things like the virgin birth of Christ were important, but they all included this, and they did it in their own ways. And they also slapped it onto the beginning of the book of Acts 2 for good measure. Four out of the five are similar. They all have their own way of expressing it, but they are similar. So here's how John presents it. This is John 20, 21 through 23, reading from the NIV. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. That's John's version of the commission. Matthew's version, the one that everybody quotes, says in chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountains where Jesus had them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That is the one that almost all missionaries and missionary speakers go to. And it was the opening passage that was read in my intro to missions class as a freshman. And Luke says it this way. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. This one reads like a bit of a cliffhanger because it is widely held that Luke and Acts had the same author and that Acts was basically a sequel. Hmm. Acts recounts the commission this way. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And now here comes Mark. The other gospel writers talk about things like performing miracles, receiving the Holy Spirit, making international impact with the gospel, these sorts of things. Mark's version is just a bit more flamboyant than average, and it includes something that the others just plain don't. It reads like this. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not harm them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will be made well. That's Mark 16, 15 through 18, also the NIV. So obviously, this is the one that these people choose to embrace. It's clearly their better story and they're sticking with it. And bonus... More than a few have died for it and still do. Yeah. So why do some people engage in snake handling? Currently, there are about 125 churches out there that are fringe adherents to the holiness movement who also follow what they call, quote, the signs. These signs are the ones mentioned in Mark's crackheaded version of the commission where Jesus promises his disciples that they'll drive out demons, speak in tongues, handle snakes, drink deadly poison without effect, and lay hands on the sick and make them well. Those are your signs right there. The problem here is that some people seem to be able to do some of these things. Again, from National Geographic, dancing around the pulpit, Tyler Evans, whose family has handled serpents for five generations, held a Coke bottle with a flaming wick to his skin, a practice called handling fire. Where is that? Again, it gets better. The teenager suffered no burns. Next, he took a swallow from a mason jar containing a mixture of water and strychnine. Um, he let out an area cough. From a few feet away, Pastor Andrew Hamblin nodded in approval. On his arms dangled two venomous copperhead snakes mottled in brown and tan. And here's where Obi-Wan and I agree. Your eyes can deceive you. Don't trust them. Just because you watch someone, quote, do something doesn't mean they're actually doing it. You can be told that someone is drinking strychnine, but it could be nothing more than baking soda and water. You can watch someone perceptibly hold a flame to their arm, but any good illusionist can pull this off too. And snakes can have their venom sacs removed so a bite doesn't turn deadly. You can also pass off a non-venomous snake as a venomous snake yeah. in a room full of people who don't know better. I'm not saying that these are outward things that they do to deceive. 
I'm just saying that this dude didn't drink strychnine. Yeah. Maybe he thought he was. Maybe this was something that was given to him that he didn't actually put together himself and he thought he was doing this. Who knows? But I'm sorry, he didn't. If he did that, he would die. A tiny, tiny little bit of that's going to kill a rat. <clears throat> now, whether or not they're doing these things remains to be seen. Whether or not they're actually doing these things, I'll, I'll be fair here. It remains to be seen. But I've never heard of someone having these kinds of multiple and varied superhuman abilities. Even if the snakes are real and unaltered, I have my doubts about the rest. I think a lot of it is more theatric than theistic. And I mean, they do use real, legit, venomous snakes because people have died of snake bites. I'm just really questioning the rest of that shit. Now, it's important to understand a couple things at this point. First, the Bible never promises that handling snakes won't result in getting bitten or killed. And these people understand and acknowledge this. It's perfectly okay with some of them if people die handling snakes. Why? Because those people died while practicing the signs. They were never told they wouldn't die from snake venom, so they know this to be a possible consequence. So getting bitten is apparently sometimes by God's plan. Again, I'll ask, whatever happened to, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Where is that in this? This is how delusional some of the adherents of this extra toxic brand of Pentecostalism are about snake handling and about the consequences of it. And they are doing what so many other groups that come under the cover of Christianity do. They completely ignore verses and passages that decry their actions in favor of being allowed to just do things their own way. Today, there are people who travel from every corner of Appalachia to attend services in various places for the express purpose of handling snakes. These services are usually very closed door and often take place in locations where the practice is most definitely not legal. Six Appalachian states have outlawed snake handling outright, including Tennessee, whose 1947 law banning the keeping of venomous reptiles stems from five people dying in snake handling rituals. But that's not going to stop a bunch of determined, radicalized people with a private enough space to do what they want and be left alone to do it. So much for obey the laws of the land, huh? I mean, do you read your New Testament? Romans 13, 1 and 2, obey the government for God is the one who has put it there. There is no government anywhere that God has not placed in power. So those who refuse to obey the law of the land are refusing to obey God and punishment will follow. Where does that go? How do they deal with that? Honestly, they don't have any real defense for it. They also don't have any real defense for why many people who get bitten by poisonous snakes and refuse medical help die. They merely justify it because handling snakes is a biblical mandate, and if a handler dies, it's a manifestation of God's will. How fucking convenient. Also convenient is how they play off people dying from snake bites by playing the it was their time card. Basically, they tell you that had that person not died of a snake bite, he would have had a stroke, a heart attack, or gotten hit by a bus. Something would have happened. It was his time. There's no possible way that they would have been able to cheat death one way or another. It was going to happen. It's just that it happened this way. God chose that time for them to die. So they would have died then anyway, regardless of the cause. Yeah, it's that bad shit. The way they think. It is that bad shit. Mm. And I found this interesting when I read it. One young snake handler had this to say about it after his first time. 
There's no feeling like that on earth, knowing you're holding death in your hands and it won't do anything to you. Oh, you know that, do you? On Memorial Day weekend of 2019, an Eastern Diamondback bit Pastor Chris Wolford of the House of the Lord Jesus in Squire, West Virginia. He collapsed, his lips and tongue swelled until he could barely breathe, and 10 hours later, and nearly seven years to the day after his brother Andy was bitten by a yellow timber rattlesnake, Chris Wolford died. He had refused medical care, opting to keep manifesting the signs and have people pray for his recovery instead. Jesus fucking Christ. Some more familiar names can be cited here, too. Also from CBS News, a snake-handling Kentucky pastor who appeared on the National Geographic television reality show Snake Salvation has died after being bitten by a snake. Surprise, surprise, surprise. According to... That's not in the quote. According to a news release from the Middlesbrough Police Department, someone called first responders at about 8.30 p.m. on February 16, 2014, regarding a snake bite victim at a church. When the ambulance arrived, they were told that Jamie Coots had gone home. Contacted at his house, Coots refused medical treatment. Emergency workers left a little after 9 p.m. When they returned about an hour later, Coots was dead. Coots was caught in January 2013 transporting three rattlesnakes and two copperheads through Knoxville, Tennessee for his church. Tennessee wildlife officials confiscated the snakes and Coots pleaded guilty to illegal wildlife possession. He was given one year of unsupervised probation. There's more of that obeying the laws of the land stuff that they do oh so well. CBS affiliate WKYT spoke to Coots about a year ago after police found several rattlesnakes and copperheads in his car. Coots said that he believed the venomous snakes couldn't hurt him as long as he had the power of God. We use them in religious ceremonies, and I believe, as for me, if I don't have them there to use, I'm not obeying the word of God, Coots said. Oh, Jamie Coots and Andrew Hamlin were buds. Hamlin was with Coots when Coots died. Yeah. And as my Theology One professor was quick to point out on day one, we aren't de facto mandated to do literally everything the Bible says to do. He cited Paul's request for his cloak and scrolls in 2 Timothy 4.13 as one example. He had somebody read the passage and then told someone else in the class to go do it. Okay, so we've made the point. You're not supposed to do everything the Bible says to do. And let's forget that it was Paul talking to Timothy. The Bible is supposed to be God-breathed. It is supposed to be the word of God. So if the word of God is bring my cloak and scrolls, then what are you waiting for? So that's how ridiculous the notion of we should take everything in the Bible literally actually is. As I was going through the process of researching this topic, I started thinking, is there even the slightest possibility that this whole picking up serpents thing was actually metaphorical? I mean, it was pointless, useless, and overly flamboyant, but was it metaphorical? I did some digging on this, but almost all the answers came from theist sources that cited Acts 28 as, you know, basically proved to the contrary. In that chapter, Paul gets bitten by a viper and survives unharmed, and this is supposed to be the proof that the whole snake handling thing is not a metaphor, and that Paul's experience was, in fact, a fulfillment of Christ's promise. Only one problem. When Paul got bitten, he wasn't handling, taunting, or stressing out the snake. It was an accident. Yeah. Just like where it says, you will drink poison and not be harmed. In my opinion, Jesus didn't mean, go do these things on purpose so I can save you. 
It just doesn't read like that. The few sources that did call snake handling a metaphor equated the snakes with a person's enemies or religious detractors. The drinking deadly poison could refer to someone trying to poison you, but it could also mean being out in the world but resistant to the toxic influences of secular thought. If that's correct, and I'm not saying it is, you know, better story and all that, Jesus is basically telling his disciples that they will have authority over enemies of the gospel and that they would be fed a lot of ideas, possibly under extreme duress, but those ideas won't poison a person's faith. But if you're into handling snakes, that's a rather boring interpretation of things, isn't it? It's not the better story. But Jamie Coote's story actually gets even better. ABC News also covered this story and interviewed Cody Coots, Jamie's son. He's a whack job too, but why wouldn't he be, having been raised in this batshit environment? Despite his father's death, Cody Coots said he doesn't believe snake handling is dangerous. It's the word of God, he said. We've always said it's a good way to live by and a good way to die by. That's, that's, so it's good. so fucked up. Yeah. It's so fucked up. And if that isn't enough... Three days after Jamie Coots died from a rattlesnake bite at church, mourners leaving the funeral went to the church to handle snakes. Because, of course, they did. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, Coots and his good friend Andrew Hamblin were featured in this reality series, Snake Salvation. Hamblin's church in Tennessee, where the law instituted in 1947 is still in effect, Hamlin's church is in Tennessee, where the law instituted in 1947 is still in effect. But being the kind of grandstanding, possibly narcissistic pinheads that these people are, they thought nothing of talking candidly about their practices to a bunch of TV producers. So what happened next? After the special aired, Tennessee authorities cracked down on Hamlin. Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency officials seized 50 poisonous snakes. You see, not just a few including rattlesnakes and copperheads from Hamblin in November and cited him for illegally possessing dangerous animals. Hamblin claimed the state was violating his First Amendment religious rights and pleaded not guilty to the charges. The case was eventually dismissed. Why? I don't know why. Why not make an example of this idiot? Yeah. Um, and you know what? I read that and I thought it was just a little bit anticlimactic. I was hoping for a little bit more. I would have liked to see some kind of consequence beyond having the snakes taken away, but maybe that's just me. No, I don't think it is. Um, now, there are those out there who are at least practical enough to seek medical help if they or someone in their church gets bitten. People like Jamie Coots refuse medical attention because it suggests a lack of faith. After all, one of the other signs is laying hands on the sick and healing them, so why would one sign not follow another, right? I mean... That's the whole point of signs following. I mean, as long as it's God's will, of course. Well, some aren't willing to bet their lives on any of that. If someone gets bitten, they call 911. Why? Because Jesus only said they'd pick up snakes. He never said anything about not getting bitten. But he also never said to refuse help if you do. So, sometimes the stupid are just smart enough to survive or they have slightly less stupid people around them who ignore their admonishments to not seek help. Lucky them, I guess. Uh, just goes to show there's faith, and then there's faith. As for Andrew Hamblin, well, losing his friend and watching him die seems to have had an impact. Since Jamie died, he said, I've offered a rattler to no one. I am the shepherd. I am responsible for what happens in this building. 
And when Cody Coots, Jamie's son, got bitten, it went off this way. During a June 2015 church service, Coots had draped a timber rattlesnake as thick as a soda can halfway around his back, and congregants shouted and a piano tinkled. Uh, that, that puts a specific picture in my head. I believe in the Lord God Almighty, and if he says I can hear him, I can. Coots bellowed into the microphone, but after he shifted the snake toward his chest, the reptile lunged at his head, striking the artery near his right temple. Ow. <laughs> yeah, Ow is right. With blood spurting over his pale blue shirt, I'm glad we put an explicit content warning on our stuff. Just yeah, right. Saying. Coots wilted into the arms of his friends, one of whom, according to Hood, asked Coots if he was ready to die. No, Coots said. Helicoptered to a hospital in Knoxville, he was put on life support and eventually recovered. He said no, so I guess it wasn't his time. I guess not. At least the son saw some of the defects in the father and made a couple better decisions. Yeah. It would have been an even better one to not pick up the snake in the first place. Yeah. But at least he sought help. You know, again, sometimes the stupid are just smart enough. And, you know, there's a lot more we could say here. This practice has a long history, but we deal with modern evangelicalism on this show. And it flabbergasts me that this is still a thing. It really does. Yeah. But, you know, there's part of me that says, well, why? I mean, you saw some pretty weird shit just in your own church. Mm. And yeah, I did. But even some of the weirdest among the people that I went to church with would have still told you that this was next level batshit insane. <laughs> and that it's not something that you really should, you know, be participating in. <clears throat> Most of the people that I went to church with understood that even if they thought they could speak in tongues and do all this other crazy shit, they they knew that they, there, there were limits to the crazy that they would endorse. <clears throat> so, well, with that in mind, I don't think I need to go into a long analysis of the whys that surround this practice. It flourishes in a part of the country that kind of lacks in the stuff to do category and way too many of the people who live in these areas or go to these churches don't have the money to spend on a lot of luxuries. I know. I used to make the collections calls on their cable bills. Yeah, true story. So when I say it in a tongue-in-cheek way to go to a water park, I know that it's not an obtainable thing for every teenager out there. But I do have to wonder where the money comes from to drive 90 miles to one of these church services so that some woman and her daughter, her teenage daughter can handle snakes. But, you know, to me, honestly, it's just one more example of the bandwagon effect. And this time, that wagon is missing a few vital safety features. Mm. As a parent and someone who works with young people every day, I cannot imagine purposely taking my teenager to a place where she will handle snakes, knowing the possible consequences if something goes wrong. I deal with parents all the time who are afraid to let their kids drive. I can't even begin to envision how a parent decides to do this. But boredom and lack of money for theme parks are only part of the reason why people seek these kinds of thrills. And if I were to be honest, I would have to say that people do a lot of risky, potentially life-threatening things in a lot of contexts. A lot can go wrong with things like skydiving bungee jumping, even just swimming in the ocean. And yes, we assume a degree of risk every time we get in our cars and drive. You can be careful handling a snake and it can still bite. You can be careful driving your car and still get plowed into by a drunk or distracted driver. The difference between everyday activities like driving, thrill-seeking activities in extreme sports, and something like snake handling all boils down to a couple key things. First, there's the whole peer acceptance thing. 
People want to fit in, so they do what the crowd is doing. And just like at Azusa Street, people just caught the vibe and -hmm. caught the excitement of this. And it just started to spread. Next, there's a real energy to a service like this, and it's something you can't find just anywhere. So that also raises the excitement levels for it. Finally, it gives them a chance to prove to themselves that God is there and watching over them. If they handle snakes and don't get bitten or engage in other risky activities in the name of the signs, it means that God's protection is with them. When we want to believe in something, even paper-thin examples of proof hold up in our minds sometimes. And again, when things go south, it must just be that person's time, or that they lack faith, or whatever. Modern snake handlers don't even seem to bash anyone for wanting medical attention. If they ask for it, get it, and survive, it wasn't their time to go, and that's that. Amazing the buffers we create in our own thought processes to ensure that we remain perpetually right. Hmm. For me, my attitude is the same as Mr. Miyagi's on this one. The best way to avoid a punch is to not be there. And if I were to speak the language of the evangelical here, I would admonish anyone who engages in this crazy practice that even your Messiah warned you about not putting God to the test. If the Bible is the word of God, you have to accept all of it. Don't worry, though. There are enough contradictions in it to allow your better story to flourish, and we'll be talking about that soon. But as a former Bible college student, I would weigh the messaging in Mark's gospel against the levels of confirmation you see in other verses to the notion of drinking poison and handling snakes without consequence. Does Paul's experience really line up? Did Andrew Hamblin even go to Bible college? And if so, I wonder if he paid attention when he was taught about a little thing called exegesis. So when I say that your faith can kill you, I'm not kidding, and I'm not overstating. People put their health in God's hands in a variety of ways, and many die refusing medical help under much less extreme circumstances. Whether it's a snake bite or a tumor or cancer or something else, the toxicity of evangelical thought can be lethal. This is why it's so important to weigh every decision we make against logic and reason, and it's important to guard ourselves against the emotionalism and sensationalism that permeates most flavors of evangelicalism and does so more in fringe groups like snake handlers. Logic and reason are good avenues to ensuring that you keep breathing, And, bonus, it will keep you moving ahead in your effort to get and stay unbound. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound.